okay? I don't know if these slides are in order. <laughs> okay, so um, let's just go to the text. We'll read the text, and then we'll walk through these passages, okay? Um, in verse 32, uh, I want to remind you where we are, right? Now, we, we, I split this up into, into three sections. The section from 19, uh, from verse 19 of chapter 10 uh, to the end of chapter 10, I split it up into three sections. Um, the NIV, uh, I think, does a really good job of, of splitting this up, but I wanted to group together 32 through the end. Um, 19 through 25, we three, see three positive exhortations, right? One is to draw near. Uh, two is to hold unswervingly to our hope. The, the draw near is drawing near to God. Hold to the hope that we have, that we profess, uh, and then encourage each other instead of uh, forsaking the assembly, right? Meet together, keep meeting together so that you can encourage each other and spur each other on to love and good deeds. Three positive exhortations. And in the second section, in 26 through 31, um, he doesn't so much as give a warning. He does. It's a kind of a veiled warning, but it's also given in a form of a hypothetical. He says, if we deliberately keep on sinning. So he's not saying you are deliberately keeping on sinning. He's saying, keep on persevering because the opposite is to fall away. The opposite is apostasy. Um, I don't know if, uh, I, we might see the slide here, but what I, I did was I took the definition of perseverance, just the modern definition of perseverance, and we're contrasting it with the definition of apostasy, right? To persevere means to keep going regardless of whatever is trying to oppose you. And apostasy is to give up and stop, right? So, so they're, they're opposites here, and he's saying, keep going because I just told you how bad it is if you stop. So he gives us, again, three clear uh, directions here in 32 through, um, through 39. And the first one, uh, you'll see it is remember. Uh, the second one is you need, uh, I'm sorry, the second one is don't throw away your confidence. And the third one is you just need to persevere. Okay, so that's how we're going to frame these today. Um, there's a lot of information here, uh, but that's how we're going to frame it today. So the first thing he says is remember. Specifically what? Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So let's pause there for a second. What does the author of Hebrews want his audience to remember? Um, now, he's directing them to a time frame to remember a thing. Even though I also want to highlight when they receive the light. And the reason I want to highlight this is because, um, I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I have found it, very, very encouraging in days when I am overcome by sin, when I'm overcome by the state of the world, when I'm overcome by whatever it is that's bothering me that day, um, I just hold on to the fact that, hey, look, I know that God completely changed me when I heard the gospel and I believed it. There was a real and a, and a, um, and a certain change. There was an enlightenment. There was one moment when I did not know Christ and I had no certainty of my salvation. And then there was another moment when I did, when I believed the gospel and I was enlightened. And that's what he points them to remember back to. 
This is at least a significant amount of time. It doesn't tell us a period of years, uh, how, pa- how far past they are, this initial persecution that they faced uh, when they believed. And, you know, we're talking about Jewish people, so they had persecution from their own families. In all likelihood, they were facing the similar kind of thing that we see uh, people who come to believe from Islam today. They're facing an ostracization from their family, rejection from their community, possible loss of job. They, many of them may have, had, have, have been impoverished for a while. Um, we see later, he's, uh, he talks about the loss of their possessions, uh, confiscation, so people are taking things that are belonging to them. Um, and so he says, remember, though, remember those days after you received the light, after you enlightened. Remember that time when you first experienced the grace of God. Um, I think people take this a little bit differently. I was reading, um, I was reading a commentary and, and guy that I respect a lot, but he was taking this as these people have not yet placed their faith in Christ. And they're kind of hanging on in the church, but they haven't really made a full profession. I just don't see that anywhere in the text. So um, I, I, I just don't see it. Um, and because he talks about receiving the light, he talks about uh, the way they suffered, he talks about uh, public, uh, being publicly exposed to insult and persecution, he talks about great suffering. And he talks about them particularly having conf- uh, confidence. And I think when we look at the whole passage, when we look at 19 through 39, what he says in the end um, applies even to the people in the very beginning and even people who needed to hear the warning in 26 through 31. He says, we are not those people who shrink back and are destroyed. That's not who we are. And he says that confidently to his brothers and sisters. The second reason that I, I just cannot see saying that these people are not saved, that they're not um, that they haven't actually experienced real saving faith, is that that would kind of dismiss this passage's usefulness for those of us who do trust in Christ. But a great many things bother us and worry us and shake us to our core and make us go back and examine our faith again. And that dismisses us and says, well, you're on the track to, to apostasy if you have a doubt. And that's just not the real world, is it? We day to day, we have doubts, we have concerns, we have fears, we have things that upset us, anger us, and make us wonder, are we going to finish the race? So, one is experiential, the other is in the text, Um, but I think he's talking to believers who need to be encouraged. So he says, remember those days after you received the light, those early days when you endured, you know, he talks about various things that they endured, but they endured. Um, I know that the people in this room that I know personally have endured things in your Christian life. I know that you've endured doubts. Many of you have endured a crisis of faith at one moment or another. Many of you have endured sickness, suffering, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a loved one who you wish knew Christ, but you know didn't. I know that you have experienced all kinds of things like that. I know that probably all of you, even though I haven't talked to personally to all of you about this, look at the state of the world and go, oh my word, what's happening? Is anything going to change? Is there any hope for revival? Is there any hope for 
something real, a real change in my community, a real change among the people that we work with, a real change in my family. You might get disillusioned when you look at the state of the country, the state of, you know, maybe it's even the economy, maybe it's politics, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your relationship with a son or a daughter or a parent, maybe it's a relationship with a neighbor. Whatever the case is, whatever it is that makes you overwhelmed and not sure if you can continue, you can look back at your life from the day that you knew Christ until today and say, look at what God has done and look at how he has helped me to endure. And you have every reason to believe that he will do so tomorrow. And so I think that's the point that the author of Hebrews is getting to. You have endured already. I know that there are more struggles. I, he, he knew that there were people, he probably knew very specific people who were struggling with very specific things. He says, remember the past. You have endured, and God's faithfulness has made you endure. Now, the other point that he points to here with remembering is remembering that when they were suffering, they suffered along with the church. They suffered along with each other. These are not Rambo Christians running around on their own, holding themselves up. You know, the kind of person who goes, just me and my Bible and the Holy Spirit, we got it. We don't need anybody else. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, no, you suffered along with others. In, in, both in this section here, where he says, sometimes you, publicly you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. Other times you stood side by side with those who were, that, who were treated that way. Um, simple illustration very simple and very not, nothing probably like what they uh, experienced. I remember once I was at work uh, as a bricklayer years and years ago, and I'm trying to share the gospel with somebody, and I was really discouraged because like nobody's listening, right? And then I met this one young man who was a believer, and he was telling me, yeah, those guys were making fun of you again. They were calling you Sunday school and all sorts of things. And I was like, oh, well, whatever. And he goes, he goes, um, he goes yeah, so I told him, hey, I like to listen to him. He's got a lot of good things to say about the Bible. You should listen. And just that simple act and then telling me about it, you know, um, hey, I stood up for you. So don't, don't diminish the value of that. And maybe you guys have examples of that as well where somebody has stood side by side, by side with you. Whether it was exactly like that or not, when somebody stands side by side with you and they say, hey, I know what you're going through and I'm with you. It means a great deal. And so that's the other thing that he points to here. You, you didn't just endure, but you endured with others even though you weren't necessarily the direct... Uh, not advancing my slides here. Would you do that for me, Evan? Just one. Um, thanks. It's that you suffered along with others. And why did you suffer along with others? Uh, I'm sorry, How? joyfully, right? When Paul talks about it in Romans 5, you know, that you can rejoice in suffering. Um, if you're like me, that passage always bothers me because I never feel like I am joyful when I suffer. I try to remind myself over and over and over again, just like Paul says in Romans 5, and just like James writes in, in James chapter 1, I know God has a good purpose in this. Why am I so terrible at suffering? Peter says you should, you know, suffer well. I'm like, I'm <laughs> I would like to suffer just not badly. I'll settle for in the middle. But why did they joyfully 
accept the confiscation of their property. Same reason in Acts, the disciples went away rejoicing that they had been counted worthy. And the same reason that every once in a while, when you're suffering, God will remind you, or somebody else will remind you, that your suffering has a purpose. That, that God is very close to you in your suffering. That he is doing something beautiful. He is working within your heart, within your new uh, heart, your newly formed self, you know, that Paul talks about. He's working on your new spiritual character. And you can be joyful. And you can look back, as you remembered in the first place, you can look back at the way that God changed you through whatever it was that you suffered. And you can be joyful in that, remembering God's faithfulness in the past. There are many ways we can be joyful. And we can remind each other to be joyful when we're in suffering. And then the next aspect he talks about is because he kept, he said, you kept your mind on the greater thing. You kept your mind on the greater possessions. In this case, where you had things taken from you, you reminded yourself you have an inheritance that's eternal that nobody can take from you. And that's how we can remind ourselves and remind each other. Not just in the loss of a possession, but in any kind of suffering, in any kind of trial. Anytime you know you're, you're, you're disillusioned when you look out at the world and the state of the world, Yes, but one day all things will be made new. We have a great and eternal inheritance. It will not diminish. It cannot fade away. It can't rust. It can't be taken away. It endures. And it will last forever. And so we can remind ourselves, we can remind each other, we have something greater waiting for us in heaven. Yes, would it be nice to see all the things that you long for in this earth? Those good things, right? Would it be nice to see you know, everybody in Hamtramck turned to Christ? Would it be nice to see your loved one, um, whether it's a parent or a child or cousin or brother or whatever else? Wouldn't it be great to see them come to know Christ? But even if you, even if you don't see that, you yourselves have better and lasting possessions. Remind yourself of this and remind others of this. So I wanted to focus in on these three things. Remember. Remember when you see the light of Christ. Remember how precious the gift of salvation is. Remember the fervor, the excitement. Shoot, remember the times when you used to read the gospel and weep because you knew you weren't worthy of what Jesus suffered. Remember that. Remember the way, you know, I don't know about all of you, maybe I'm just more emotional than some people, I don't know, but I remember those moments when salvation was so dear and so new that I couldn't talk about it. I couldn't talk about it. I would just, I would break down. Um, for some reason, I could talk about it with unbelievers normally, but with believers who knew what I was talking about, there was this, this beautiful community, this beautiful familial um, feeling Remember when you receive the light of Christ. Remember that something changed. You came to life in Christ at a time, at a place. And when you did, you knew that Christ was worth everything. And since that day, your life has been a continual into trial, out of trial, into trial, out of trial. 
Sometimes two or three at once. Sometimes walking through next to somebody else. If you're married, you've been, you've been watching your husband or your wife go through those things. And they've been there for you and you've been there for them. And the church has been there for you and you've been there for others. And it has been joy, hasn't it? Maybe not in the middle of it, but after it's over. And thirdly, you have an eternal inheritance waiting. The pleasures at the right hand of the Father will last forever. So when you are suffering, the author of Hebrews is writing to a church that's suffering. And many of them are wavering. And many of them are doubting themselves and wondering, will I hold fast to the good confession that I have made? And he says, hey, don't forget that your life changed when you knew Christ. Don't forget that in those days, you joyfully suffered. You endured. Thirdly, you have an inheritance that will last forever. Now, the second part, um, hopefully I'll go through it a little faster. Uh, He says, don't throw away your confidence. Let's not lose sight of the fact that he has used this word confidence in the same way a couple of different times already. In the end of chapter 4 of Hebrews, he says we have confidence, not because of what we've went through, but because of who Christ is. Um, I'll go ahead and read those couple verses really quickly for you if you don't turn there in your Bible yourself. In verse 14 of chapter 4, he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So in the middle of this trial, suffering, whatever point you're at, he says to these believers, remember your confidence. Uh, It's the next verse. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence based on those things he just said about Jesus, right? So the idea is not throwing away your confidence is we have confidence because of who Jesus is and what he's done. We have confidence because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. We have confidence to to enter into that presence because of Jesus and find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Because when you are going through a trial, when you're suffering through something, when you have doubts, whatever the case may be, whatever it is you're suffering, whatever it is you're wondering is going to make you stop running that race, you can enter into the presence of God because of Jesus Christ and find grace and mercy to help you. That's the confidence that you don't want to throw away. It's not a confidence in yourself. Yes, God has carried you through things before, but this confidence is in Jesus in his place and in his person and what, makes, what he makes available to you. And again, we see it'll be richly rewarded. I, I just think this is going right back to the heavenly reward. I don't think we're talking about at this point, you know, extra rewards. He said, this is what you need. You need to persevere. I kind of like the ESV here. He says, you have need of perseverance. So that when you've done the will of God, you'll receive what he has promised. Again, that inheritance now, I'm going to try to run through this kind of quickly. Uh, here's my slide on persevere and perseverance. If you need a definition, we'll talk later. But um, there are four things that the author of Hebrews points to in these two verses. Now, I put Isaiah 26, 20 up there. Um, I have a slide, so we'll go there. Um, and I want us to look at these really quickly and see what's going on here, where he's quoting from. 
So give you a little context, Isaiah 26. Uh, if you have the NIV, it'll have a subheading like uh, praising the Lord or, or praise song to the Lord. And he tells us right in the beginning uh, that, that God gives to Isaiah a song for the people to sing in Judah on the day of salvation. And he goes through similar themes, the greatness of God, the hardness of struggle. And in, and in verse 20, he talks, he's, he's, he's beginning to talk about uh, the suffering that's going to come about, both from an enemy uh, and the suffering that individuals have to go through. And in verse 20, he says, go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. And then he says, see, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the bloodshed on it. The earth will conceal it slain no longer. And we know that the judgment of God very often comes in the form of, for Israel at that time, the judgment of God came on Israel in the form of the Babylonian army. When they, when they smashed through Judah and Jerusalem, uh, and then later when they demolished everything, um, the Lord's judgment took the form of a physical army. But what Isaiah understands here, what God has helped him to understand is that judgment, is it, when judgment comes, it's the Lord dealing it out, whatever form it takes. So there's two points that I think he's, he's picking up on here. One, that it's just a little while. In the grand scheme of eternity, whatever's going on is just for a little while. Whatever's going on today, whatever you're suffering with today, and you'll know this in a couple of months when you're like, hey, wonder how I struggled so hard in that thing because it's just a little while and it passes you by. And the second part is, is that the Lord is coming. He's coming for judgment and he's coming for his people. And so we move forward into Habakkuk. This is the NIV's rendition of Habakkuk. I thought it'd be easiest for us. And the party highlights uh, here he says, for the revelation waited an appointed time. Some translations may say vision. Um, it speaks of the end. When we think about end, we're thinking about, um, we're thinking about justification for God's people, vindication for God's people, and judgment on his enemies, right? Um, there are certainly many periods of judgment Israel went through, but there is a final judgment that we're talking about. He says, though it linger, wait for it. It seems like now it's taking a while. Just keep waiting it will come and it will not delay. So that, that part about it won't delay. He's set a day and he's not going to push it back. And then finally, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the, uh, the righteous person will live by his faith. Now, if you're looking at different uh, translations and if you're looking at, um, I, I gave you the Septuagint, Septuagint. I've heard people pronounce it different ways. I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, this is the uh, this is a very early um, translation. Uh, it was 1844 about um, of the Septuagint. The Greek translation is like a second, third century BC translation of the Old Testament scripture into Greek that the, that the New Testament writers are, are most likely seeing. Something about 75% of the time that the New Testament writers cite the Old Testament, they quote from the Septuagint. And for whatever reason, a lot of times, they will highlight passages where there's a difference between the Hebrew and the Greek. Very, very interesting to me. Uh, I hope it's interesting to you too. I hope it doesn't cause you to waver. Um, it makes me really happy because it tells us right there in the scripture that God accepts translations. So um, if, if, if the New Testament is written 75% of the time with translations from the Old Testament, you can trust translations. Not everyone's perfect, but they're all going to point you 
uh, to the true and authentic word of God. They're all authoritative for your life. So, um, but here, it, the Septuagint departs a little bit from the Hebrew in that it attributes um, uh, the, the judgment that's coming to God. I think that's what he's saying. He says, he should come, wait for him, he will surely come. He's talking about God. The whole tone of Habakkuk is, it's really simple, right? It's three chapters. I would, I would encourage you to read it, but I'll just help you understand. It's only Habakkuk and God. That's, it doesn't involve like messages, it looks like, for other people. I mean, although he kept the record and, and the Jews knew this work, it wasn't like an interaction between the people and God. It was just Habakkuk and God, just the prophet, just the individual and God. And he's like, God, look at all this wickedness and violence in Judah and Jerusalem. You know, man, what's going on? And God says, don't worry, I'm going to bring the Babylonians. They're going to destroy everything. And he goes, whoa, 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 hold up, God. These guys are evil. And you're a good God. Would you really use evil people to destroy your people? Um, <laughs> yes, he would. But he talks about in the, in the last section that God reveals in chapter Three, because in the end of chapter, anyway, or I'm sorry, in the in the in chapter two, um, the end of chapter one, uh, Habakkuk's like, okay, well, I'm just going to wait. I'm going to see what God says, and so then God promises judgment, and this is right at the beginning. He says, listen, this vision that you have of of this army coming, it's going to come. It's going to happen. God is going to deal out justice. He's going to judge you, and then in chapter three, he talks about how God is going to also judge the Babylonians. Your, your translation may say Chaldeans, but it's the same group of people. And he highlights this again. This will surely come. It's not going to, uh, it's not going to, to be delayed. It might seem like it's taking a while, but it's surely going to come at the appointed time. Now we walk back to Hebrews chapter 10, and we look at the way he highlights this. So he says four distinct things. This is not like a situation where sometimes uh, Matthew will highlight a prophecy that points to Jesus, and he'll say, this is what is meant by this, and he'll point here. That's not this kind of prophecy. This isn't that kind of prophecy. This is, he is borrowing from Old Testament scripture, borrowing from Old Testament principle to show us the truth as we understand it under the new covenant. So what I mean is this. He says, you're suffering right now. It's just going to last a little while. Paul borrows the same idea when he says, you know, that this temporary suffering is nothing in, in comparison with the, the glory that's waiting for us, right? It's just a little while, he points out, and Jesus will come, right? Just like he said, judgment is coming, and then the translators of the Septuagint felt it was best to personify that judgment and say, hey, that's the Lord who's coming. The author of Hebrews does the same thing. He says, Jesus is not going to delay. He is going to come. I know you're suffering right now, but there is a day, and he is going to come, and he's going to put an end to all that suffering. Thirdly, he says, how do you need to live? The righteous one has always lived by faith. Always lived. You could, there's several translations, of this, or several different ways to, to, to render this in English. Uh, one says, the righteous will live by his faithfulness. Another says, um, by faith in me, right? So, but the idea is, is that faith in God according to his word, right? So the one who is righteous is going to keep trusting in God's word over the circumstances. 
Same idea when, when, when we read, uh, we live by faith and not by sight, right? We live by faith in God who gave us his word and all is he revealed rather than the condition of the world or the condition of our own lives, right? And then, I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. This could be an alternate reading of what we saw in the Septuagint, or it could be um, Zephaniah 1, verse 6, I believe, where he says exactly this, um, that the one who turns back from following the Lord is not going to be uh, saved. So, those four things. Persevere, because it's just a little while longer. Persevere, because Jesus is coming, and that day when he's coming has not been delayed. There is a day, and it is set. We don't know it, but it's coming. Jesus is coming. And the righteous, we live by faith. We look at what God's word says. We look at what he commands, and we do that. And we do it just a little while longer because he's coming. And we do it a little while longer because God is not pleased if you turn away. And the last thing he leaves his people with here is we are not those people who shrink back. That's not us. You may feel like giving up sometimes, but I know you're going to keep putting one foot in front of the other, he says. You're going to keep doing it because I know you. I've seen your testimony. Your testimony is good. I know your Savior and he is able. And so, as we look at this, I made, I think, four notes on what we can do And it's just the same thing from the passage. So I'm just going to be repeating the same stuff that the author of Hebrews did. This isn't anything new. How can we apply this personally? Well, one, remember the faithfulness of God. From the days you first placed your faith in Christ until now. Remember that he changed you. Remember he made you new. Remember he began to work in your life in a way that you could notice. Remember that. You have been enlightened. And you know, I I don't know each person... We can't see their heart. But if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this is talking to you. Just remember the faithfulness of the God who has carried you all this way. And remember how others in the church have loved you and walked beside you and encouraged you, whatever you were suffering, whatever you were uh, enduring, and then consider how you can go do the same for them. Remember that's going back to the earlier part of, of chapter 10. Don't throw away your confidence in Jesus, who is our great high priest, who stands for us in the presence of God. Don't throw it away, because at that point, at this point in your life, that's what you'd be doing if you walked away. You'd be throwing away all the confidence that God's word gives to you. Not to mention the fact you'd be throwing away all the efforts of everyone else who has has worked in your life and prayed for you. Through Jesus Christ, we have an endless supply of grace and mercy to help us whenever we have need. So don't throw away that confidence and enter into the presence of God when you're suffering. He already knows any way he cares deeply for you and he will give you grace and mercy to help you. And then, all you lack is perseverance. That's the way I was looking at this passage when I saw this. You have need of perseverance. You just need to persevere. You don't lack anything else. If you have trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, in his death and his his righteous life, his victorious and sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection, if that's you and you've endured in the faith, you haven't walked away from from the teachings of, uh, of of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you've endured, all you lack is endurance. 
All you lack is perseverance. You just need to keep going. Whether you're doing it with a cheery attitude, you remember the movie Nemo? Whether you're just like, just keep swimming, or whether you're swimming around, you feel like you're going in circles with a broken fin, keep going, right? Just keep going. All you need to do is persevere. Everything that you need to do has already been done except for continuing to do it until your race is won. All you lack is perseverance. And so I wanted to read something uh, which gave me great encouragement at the end of Habakkuk. Uh, this is uh, from, from Habakkuk chapter 3. Um, this is the response of, of Habakkuk. Actually, I'm going to start a little bit early in, in verse 14. In verse 14, he says, um, sorry, I'm going to jump to 12. He says, in wrath, you strode through the earth, and in anger, you threshed the nations, speaking to God. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour, the wretched were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. I think this is important. If you are a follower of Jesus, you understand that it could get way worse for us before it gets better. Before that day that Christ returns, we have suffered in the past and we will likely suffer in the future. And it could get very bad. It could get as ugly as it does around the world. When that day comes, if that day comes, who are you? Do you belong to those who shrink back? Or do you belong to those who persevere and are saved? He says, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign, sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. See, I know that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you can identify with the way Habakkuk feels. You look out, you see the state of the church. And when I say the church, you know I'm talking about the world's definition of the church, people who identify as the church and are not. That's one thing that dismays me incredibly when I see people who claim the name of Christ and, and trod on his sacrifice. When I see the state of the world or the community, these are things that are distressing to me. But we need, and, and so we can identify with Habakkuk in this situation as we look out on the world and we look out on people who are supposed to be God's holy people and they're not. But whatever happens, this is how we need to live. We need to live by faith and we need to rejoice in the Lord. We need to be joyful in God our Savior because He is our strength. He makes us able to do whatever it is He has called us able to do. So I hope, um, this was a huge encouragement to me. Um, I hope it's an encouragement to you because God who is able to make you stand will make you stand. He's done it to this day so far and He will continue to be faithful. And the question is, will you be faithful? 
And if you're going to be faithful, then make sure you're faithful to your brothers and sisters and give them the encouragement that they need, that you depend on as well. And we can look forward to that day. Um, Let's pray, and then we're going to sing, um, He Will Hold Me Fast. I thought it had a nice, uh, fit nicely with this, that it's God who holds us fast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you who have promised are able to carry out all that you have promised. That you who, who, who gave us Christ, who enlightened us through the gospel, who made us new in Jesus, uh, you who have given us the strength to carry on, even if maybe not the best, through trials and suffering, you have helped us to endure and you will continue to help us to endure. Help us, Father, to have that same um, attitude toward our brothers and sisters. Help us to help each other to endure, to be encouraging, to pray, to stand next to, to suffer alongside with, so that we can all stand before your throne one day, complete in Christ. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. And sing.